The writer to the Hebrews talks about what happened in the wilderness. All but two of the original millions who left Egypt to go to the promised land died in the wilderness. And the writer to Hebrews addresses the question, why? What was the spiritual sickness that claimed the millions of lives? What he, the writer says, who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fall in the desert? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Why did so many children of God die in the desert? It indicates that they disobeyed. <clears throat> this disobedience is disobedience rooted in disbelief. That's what it says. They disobeyed, but at the heart of it, they were not able to enter because of unbelief. So there's disobedience and disbelief, but there is a related problem that he points out that opens the door to disbelief and disobedience. So being able to take care of this problem also takes care of the problem of disobedience and disbelief. Let's see what he points out. Now, we who have believed, enter that rest, just as God has said, so I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet, his work has been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words, and on the seventh day God rested from all his work. And again in the passage above he says, they shall never enter my rest. God commanded that they enter his rest, but they were not able to do so. And it suggests that the inability to enter God's rest, that led to disobedience and disbelief. From a spiritual perspective then, entering God's rest is not nice. It might seem like a nice thing, but it's not nice. It's necessary. Let's talk about what exactly is God's rest. And how do we enter it? And again, the writer is suggesting that this is the thing that we take away from the wilderness. If we want to avoid falling into the things they fell into, learning to enter God's rest is priority one. Uh, what is God's rest about anyways? It says, God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. The end of creation marked the beginning of God's rest. It talks about he called the seventh day holy. It's a holy day, and it's the word from which we get. This is where we get the idea of holiday, holy day. It's a day of rest. And for God, the past years since creation have been holidays. God has been at rest. Often, God's hatred of this or that is used to motivate devotion. 
God hates this, he hates that, so don't do this and don't do that. God hates it when people do this or that, so get people not to do this or that. As hard it is to believe, it suggests here that God's rest isn't altered by world events. Let that sink in. It's, it's hard to believe, really, that God's rest is not disturbed by world events. God doesn't see things happening in this part of the world or that part of the world and react. He is rest, and that might seem to be hard-hearted. That's what we have to understand. Why is this rest so important? God points not at world events. When God identifies something that needs to be dealt with, what he points at is the underdeveloped ability of his children to enter into his rest. That's what God points out, the underdeveloped ability of his children to enter into his rest. And so God invites us then to enter into his rest. The Exodus generation failed to enter God's rest. And this was the problem. Unbelief excluded them from doing so. It says it still remains that some will enter that rest. And those who formerly had the gospel preached to them did not go in because of their disobedience. It suggests that rest was available and unbelief prevented them from entering it. That's the problem. When it comes to rest, the problem that is that unbelief, that's what keeps us from being able to enter God's rest. The writer goes on to talk about rest was available, and rest is still available. Look what it says. Therefore, God again set a certain day, calling it today, when a long time later he spoke through David, as was said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, for if Joshua had given them rest, God not would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. What it says, there remains a Sabbath rest then for the people of God an invitation to us to enter his rest. Anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work as God did from his. God continues to invite us to enter his rest. What does it mean to enter God's rest? A lot of things happen in life that make us restless, things that happen that concern us, and they rightfully concern us, things that are concerning what does it mean to enter God's rest? A couple of things it doesn't mean. Entering God's rest doesn't mean that we exit our restlessness. Some would suggest that we go into God's presence, but we can't go in restless. Entering God's rest doesn't mean that we exit our restlessness. I hear it sometimes during worship where the person leading worship would indicate, don't think about yourself, just go into God's presence and think about him. Now, there might be a time that that happens, but this is not what this verse is saying. When you enter God's rest, you don't leave your restlessness behind. 
You pick up your restlessness and bring your restlessness into his rest. It doesn't mean that we exit our restlessness. Neither does it mean that God enters our restlessness and changes it. He doesn't do that. He doesn't come in and tell us to calm down. Entering God's rest means, well, what does it mean? How could we enter into God's rest? It says in Hebrews, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. God wants us, when we're restless, to come to him and speak freely to him about our concerns. What do we need? What is it that we need to believe in order that we could come to God's presence and speak freely to him about the things that concern us, because apparently that is what it means to enter into his rest. It's not just changing the way we think. It's also inviting us to do something, to come into God's presence, to think of him in a certain way. And because of the way we think of him, that we learn to express our concerns to him, to speak freely. That's what it means when it says, approach the throne of grace with confidence. It means entering his presence and talking to him about the things that concern us. And apparently what we can develop is the ability to touch our restlessness and to enter his rest and in doing so, it helps us deal with disbelief and disobedience. What do we need to believe about God in order to be able to approach the throne of grace and speak honestly? Last week, we talked about one thing, the sympathy of the Son. Let's reiterate just very quickly. Um, the sympathy of Jesus allows us to approach the throne of grace to speak freely. That's what this verse indicates. We don't have a high priest who isn't able to sympathize with our weaknesses. There's a reason the writer points this out. What he's going to suggest in verse 16 is that we approach the throne of grace to speak freely. What he talks about in verses 14 and 15 are things that enable us to do that. God wants us to get to the place where we can speak freely with him. What he suggests then is making room for the sympathy of Jesus is instrumental in allowing us to approach the throne of grace and speak freely. We've talked about this before. Think about somebody that you can speak freely with. You really don't have to hide. You don't have to pretend to be better than you are. Can you think of a person like that? Think about that person. If you're really troubled by something, this is the person you could go to. You don't have to hem and haw. You can really, well, I would imagine that one of the things about that person is they're sympathetic. They don't judge you. They don't say you shouldn't think that or you shouldn't say that. If, if you talk to somebody about a concern and they say you shouldn't think that or you shouldn't say that, okay, you're probably not going to open up to them the next time. Sympathy is something that is necessary. Apparently, the sympathy of the Son is not nice. If we are to enter God's rest, and that is at the root of dealing with belief, disbelief, and disobedience, if we are to enter God's rest, making room for the sympathy of Jesus is 
absolutely essential. That's what this verse indicates. We need to understand that Jesus, well, there's a couple of things we talked about last week. If you want to develop a capacity to think about Jesus in such a way that you are mindful of his sympathy, a couple of things we talked about last week. Um, it says, you see me. It says, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs Jesus was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. What it suggested, Jesus sees us. He understands why we think what we think. He understands we want to do this, but we also want to do that. We want to think this, but we want to think that. We want to feel this, but we feel that. He understands that we don't have the ability to want what we want, do what we do, think what we think, and feel what we feel. He knows we're divided, we're split. He understands that. Um, you see me. See, sometimes we think that he doesn't understand what we're going through, and we don't say things to him because he wouldn't understand. He does understand. He sees it. He understands why we're troubled. And what he would let us know, not only does he see, it goes on to say, he sympathizes with us. It says, now my heart is troubled, Jesus said, and what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. As we talk, he says his heart was agitated. His heart, agitation is like a storm at sea, restless. Jesus might not understand disbelief or disappointment or discouragement, but he understands what's at the root of this. That's why identifying restlessness at the root is really important, because that's something Jesus can sympathize with. He experienced restlessness. Not only does he see us, he sympathizes with us. He knows what it feels like to want different things, and to be restless because he wanted different things. Father, take this cup from me. Your will be done. He understands what that feels like, how we react. Uh, you see me. You sympathy, sympathize with me. It says you deal gently with me. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Gentleness allows for rest. Uh, entering God's rest requires that we exercise faith, that we believe in the sympathy of the Son. When you're talking to God then, and when you're approaching Him, um, and we'll talk more about this next week, what you're going to be, if you're going to be honest, you're going to say, God, I feel restless. I feel agitated about this or that. I, I have this in my life and I don't like it. I have this in my checkbook and I don't like it. I have this in my job, I don't like it. I have this in my relationships. And you don't hide it, you, you're mindful of it. But then you think about, and Jesus, and this is what happens when we think about, we look at ourselves. but I want to, you see Jesus seeing you. And this is the thing, if you're honest with him, what you're going to say to him is, you see me. You see me, and you think about Jesus, the sympathy of the Son. We're going to talk about the sovereignty of the Father, but we're talking about the sympathy of the Son. God sent him to be in a body so he could sympathize, and so that's something to be mindful of. You see me, and when you're talking to God, think about Jesus and think about that. You sympathize with me, because he does. 
and you deal gently with me. Why would you think about you see me and you sympathize with me and you deal gently? Why would you do that? You know why? Because it will allow a sense of rest inside that will allow you to go to the throne of grace and to speak freely. There's the sympathy of the Son, but there's something other that we need to understand. Not just the sympathy of the Son, but the sovereignty of the Father. We've looked at this verse. It says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Be still and know that I am God. We talked about what that means. To be still means to let your arms hang limp at your side. It, it's, it's a reaction. You can actually, you act, we actually make drop our arms and have them hang limp at our side. Um, we do that when we are dealing with something that we can't manage. Sometimes an adversary that's so strong, we just say, oh, that's it. I can't do anything about that. We let our arms hang limp at our side. But that's not what it means in this context. Another time, not only when there's no way to defend ourselves, but when there's no need. And if God is for us, who can be against us? And when we recognize that God is with us, then we can be still. Let our arms hang limp at our side. And that's what God tells us to do. Be still. I will be exalted in the nations, and I will be exalted in the earth. God is not panicked by what is happening in your life. God is not panicked by your disobedience. He's not panicked by what's happening in the world. He's not panicked by what's happening in Congress. Hard as it is to say, he's not panicked by what's happening in Ukraine. I'm not saying that he wants it. What he wants, as he looks at the world, he wants his children to learn to enter his rest, to understand his sovereignty, to pour out their hearts to him, because that allows us to be the people he wants us to be. I think the thing that Jesus was able to do in his life, Jesus faced a lot of threats. What Jesus learned is to live in the rest of the Father. He learned it early on, and it became the thing that allowed him to do what it is he did. He knew the Father was with him. It's hard to learn to be honest with God. It's hard to admit to him that we think and feel the things we think and feel. It's hard for us to talk to him about that because we feel like, well, I don't want to talk about stuff like that, what he says. Enter his rest. And what that means, we approach the throne of grace and we speak freely with him. It's hard. That's not an easy thing to learn, but that's what he asks us to learn. God tells us to be still. The verse, it says in the book of Zephaniah, do not fear, O Zion, do not let your hands hang limp. And what he's saying, don't be still. He's saying be still, but don't do so because you are afraid. This is what he says. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. God is with you. Why would you let your hands hang limp at your side? There's all kinds of things happening, things that need to be addressed. Why did it suggest here? You can let your arms hang limp at your side because God is with you. And God will not let his arms hang limp at his side. God is with you. 
God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. I like this last one. He will quiet you with his love. Why would you enter God's rest, learn to enter God's rest? And again, this is a process that takes time, I think. It's not something that happens quickly. Because when you learn to enter God's rest, what you end up experiencing is God quieting you with his love. It says, so it says, love this verse, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? There's a couple verses, a couple promises he says. God says, again, if we try to, if we, and we'll talk more about this next week, God says to us, with respect to his sovereignty, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted in the nations and I will be exalted in the earth. I win at the end. My purpose are going to be accomplished no matter how it looks now. And then he says, never will I leave you. Not only is God great, but he's good. He says, never will I leave you. What it means is to leave is to untie something. I want you to think about a boat on a, on a, a dock. And if you, there's a fast-moving river, you untie the boat, what happens to the boat? It will float downstream and it will be harmed per, perhaps on the way. What God says, I will never do that to you. I will never untie you so that you are drifting at the whims of fate. He says, I will not do that. He says, I will never, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. To forsake is to leave somebody in a difficult place. We talked about it. What the Marines say is Semper Fi, always faithful. A Marine will never leave another Marine in the field of battle. If they will do whatever is necessary to get them, this is what God says. I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. I will never cast you adrift and I will never leave you behind. The thing that's interesting about this, like it says, keep your lives free from the love of money. Because apparently money makes promises to us, the same kind of promises God makes. Money says, I will never leave you and never forsake you. If you have enough of me, you'll always be provided for. Money can make those claims, but it really can't. It can't keep the promises. God says the same things. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Focusing on the sympathy of the son, you see me. You sympathize with me. You deal gently with me. Tuning in his sympathy and the sovereignty of the Father and listening to what he says to you, be still. I am God. I will be exalted in the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. Tuning in the sympathy of the Son and the sovereignty of the Father allows us gradually to learn to enter into, enter into God's rest. It says, let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. Entering God's rest 
is priority one. And the thing that I understand is that you can't wait for a crisis to do it. You can't wait for everything to fall apart to try to enter God's rest. That's something that requires some discipline. So here's what I'm going to suggest, and we're going to talk about it more next week. Make room for this. Make room for this. I don't know when it is you think about God. Is it in the morning or is it at nighttime? I'm going to ask you to, to, to keep your mind, to be mindful of two things. The sympathy of the Son and the sovereignty of the Father. Make room for it. Think about it in the morning. Think about it at night. What will happen as you do so, it will become something that you believe more deeply. You have to think about something to believe it. Be mindful of this. We, are, we tend to be concerned about our lack of obedience or the things that we don't think, but what God says, don't focus there. Focus on these things, the sympathy of the Son and the sovereignty of the Father. And as you do so, what will happen slowly, it will open up an ability. You'll find yourself being a little more honest with God. You'll end up coming into his presence and being able to talk more freely with him. You'll learn to enter his rest. And what you're going to find, entering his rest, it allows you to to deal with yourself a little more gently. It allows you to deal with others a little more gently, to be more loving toward them. And that's ultimately what God wants. Let's stand for closing prayer. God, thanks for the writer of this, uh, this letter. The Christian life feels confusing in some ways. So many things you ask of us, and yet it boils down to really one thing, it seems. You want us to learn to enter your rest. You are not panicked by the world. You're not panicked by us. Your purposes are going to be accomplished. You will be exalted in the nations, and you will be exalted in the earth, and that's not up for grabs. You tell us to be still. You tell us that you will never leave us or forsake us. You ask us to enter your rest. I pray that we would, little by little, tune in those things, believe those things you want us to believe, the sympathy of the Son, that He... You do see us, Jesus. You sympathize with us and you deal gently with us. We need to be aware of that. And we need to be aware, Father, not only of the big heart of the Son, but the big shoulders of the Father. That you're going to be you're going to accomplish your purposes in the earth, and you'll never leave us or forsake us. Thanks for these things, and I'd ask that little by little that they might occupy a bigger place in our mind, and we would find ourselves moving towards you, talking to you when we are restless just like Jesus learned to do. In Jesus' name, amen.